Tonight, it's a pleasure to welcome back Kim Steinhardt, who is going to discuss sea otters and how we can protect them. Kim is a former California State Administrative Law Judge who teaches law classes on legislative advocacy, emphasizing ocean protection. He's on the board of directors of the Long Marine Lab, Seymour uh, Discovery Center at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He photographs sea otters, presents illustrated talks, and regularly writes on things all about sea otters. He leads cultural and history and natural history walks along the coast near his home in Monterey Bay. All of them focus on ocean preservation, sea otters, and the complex relationships between people and nature. Kim was an advisor when we revised our sea otter exhibit a number of years ago. He grew up on San Francisco Bay, fell in love with sea otters as a teenager when he was a spending a lot of time along the beach in Point Lobo. He got his bachelor's degree from Berkeley in social welfare, took some time off, he did photography, and became a naturalist, and got a law degree from Santa Clara Law School. When he was here the last time, he reminded me I characterized him as a keen observer and a wonderful storyteller. He is both of those, and he's also a remarkable photographer. Please join me in welcoming back Kim Steinhardt. Thank you, Jerry, for that warm welcome. It makes me feel right at home here. Um, and in fact, before I even get into the program, let me start by saying, what a, an incredible job you've done here, Jerry, with the aquarium and building this institution and this organization, um, your leadership, the great staff you put together, including Linda Brown. I'm not sure if she's here, but she's coordinator for this evening. She's always here on these evening performances. Um, but you've really built something that is a great place for education, for research, uh, and for people to come together in, in community. Um, and so it's a, a lasting tribute. And so we really appreciate it. And we, we need more of that. Uh, thanks. So, um, but I'm also really appreciative of you all for coming out tonight uh, on a weeknight during the summer, no less. Thank you for coming. Um, uh, when I see a good group like this coming together, uh, it actually, uh, tells me there's a lot of interest in sea otters and ocean conservation issues more generally. And uh, it warms my heart because it, it tells me that there really is a future for our oceans and our creatures and our planet, despite some of the big challenges that lie ahead. Uh, and of course, we face more challenges today than I think we probably ever have. Um, so our work is cut out for us, but I'm also a big believer in the idea that if we all pull together in the same general direction on some of these important issues, some of which I'll talk about tonight, um, there are really no obstacles that we can't overcome. But this evening you can leave the lifting to me. I want you to sit back and relax, and I'm going to take us on a deep dive, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, off of the edge and into the nearshore ocean waters, the home of the California sea otter also known as the Southern Sea Otter. Don't let the two different names fool you. It's one name for the same creature. Um, and I hope that by the time uh, we're done this evening, you'll agree with me that sea otters are more than just another pretty face. <laughs> they certainly are that. They sell themselves with their cuteness. Uh, but I make the case that they represent something much more substantial in terms of helping us understand our relationship with nature 
and our relationship with the ocean in particular. I think there are even some lessons we can learn from the sea otter story about how we as humans try to use law and policy to manage nature, sometimes successfully and sometimes not so much. Now, one of the reasons that sea otters are so helpful in this understanding, uh, they're known as a sentinel species or an indicator species because what happens to sea otters indicates to us or tells us a lot about what's going on with the health of the nearshore ocean waters in which they thrive. In fact, turns out the threats that they face and the threats that we face are largely one and the same, so they're kind of like the canary in the coal mine. And what happens to sea otters can often foreshadow what might happen to humans. Um, in that sense, selfishly, if for no other reason than to help preserve our own species, we need to be paying attention to what's going on with sea otters in the ocean. And we haven't always been kind to that ocean. Um, we talk sometimes about the big issues of climate change and sea level rise and some of these planetary concerns, planet-wide concerns, but even at the basic level of just garbage in the ocean and trash and pollution, plastics, toxics, um, we still have a long way to go. I have more than my fair share of pictures of sea otter pups and trash. And this little pup has a rusted iron pipe that it's come up with. Um, this one has a little piece of molded plastic that it's come up with. Here's another one with a glass soda bottle. And of course, for sea otters and these pups at this very young age, life is all about learning how to eat and what to eat. So this is both dangerous and confusing for them at this early stage. But on the upside, um, I think we are beginning to make some of the decisions that we need to make and take some of the actions that we need to take to try to help restore and rehabilitate these important resources um, and then preserve and protect them for all the creatures that live within them, like the sea otters, and then some creatures like humans who don't live in the ocean uh, but are fully dependent upon the ocean for our survival. Now, I tend to look at this sea otter story through a little more of a legal lens than others might. Um, my profession has been a, a, a lawyer, a litigator, a former judge, an advocate, um, and so I tend to look at the legal and policy side of the story, and there really is a legal and policy side of the story. It just doesn't get as much attention as some of the other sides. And there are some lawsuits out there. There's some legislation that's being proposed. There are rules and regulations, and there are various programs, things that if they fall the wrong direction are going to have a grave impact on the ability of sea otters to be able to expand back into their historic range and thereby get the kinds of numbers they need to have in order to be a sustainable species once again. It might surprise you to learn that there are only just under 3,200 southern sea otters left. Just under 3,200 southern sea otters left on this planet. So despite some of the conservation successes that we've had, and there have been many, there's still a long way to go before this creature can be declared to be uh, out of the woods or a sustainable species once again. Now, as you've noticed and as Jerry mentioned, I like to use pictures. Uh, I'm a big believer in the idea that every picture tells a story. A picture is worth a thousand words. In fact, since uh, I've been trying to get a good picture of a sea otter since I was, uh, uh, well, in the ancient days of film, some of you may remember those days. Um, but uh, I think they help illustrate and tell the story. Let me give you an example. With this picture, what's the story in this picture? Um, I might capture, caption this picture, adult male sea otter praying to the sun and giving thanks for the, the warmth of this day. 
but really, what's up with the paws? What is going on in this picture? Well, we know that the sea otters have this incredibly rich and luxurious uh, coat of fur. Uh, they have that because they don't have any blubber. So unlike all the other marine mammals, the whales, the dolphins, the seals, the sea lions, and et cetera, um, they don't have blubber, so they have to have something to protect them against the freezing cold ocean waters, and that's this incredibly rich and luxurious fur. But it's that same fur that's attracted human attention and put them in the crosshairs of human beings for several hundred years, where we've hunted them nearly to extinction. More on that later. Um, there's one place on the body of the sea otter, there are a couple, but this is one of them, where there is no fur, and that's on the palms of its forepaws. So what this sea otter is doing is he's pressing the palms of his paws together in order to keep the heat from escaping from his body. He's also keeping it out of the cold waters as well. Just like we might do if you're out in the snow on a cold day and you didn't have any gloves on, you might put your palms together too. Um, so in this picture, I see the story of the sea otter's physiological battle with the ocean and survival, and I see the dynamic relationship with humans and how that's played out. And that's what I see in this picture. Maybe you just saw a sea otter praying and giving thanks to the, to the sun. So I have uh, something, a couple of video clips that I want to show because in addition to still pictures, I think video clips can bring the motion and the sounds. They can't bring the water in the room, but we don't need to get wet. So let me just share, this is about a 30 second clip, uh, and I might dedicate this to those who think that sea otters don't make any noise. Um, this is a sea otter mom and her pup, and she's just finishing eating a mussel, and she knows she's gonna have to dive for another mussel, so she's gotta take Junior with her to the spot where she's gonna dive, because she's very deliberate about where she wants to go. So how does she bring them along? Well, the best way is just grab a hold of them, drag them over there, she gets to the spot where she wants to go, now she's going to dive and she's going to have to worry that something might happen to him, so she's going to have to look around a little bit and she's going to do a little periscope thing here to see if there's any threats that have to uh, concern her before she's going to leave him for just a moment and get some shellfish. And she takes a look around, everything's fine, down she goes. His world just fell apart because mom abandoned him forever. He's a little high strung. Very insecure. Ah, but she's come back to the surface, and all is right with the world again. <laughs> now, before I can talk at all about, I think, the policies or, or that sort of thing and make sense out of that, um, I need to lay a little foundation. Otherwise, it's not going to put it, you know, context is necessary, I think. Uh, and so there are two things that I really do need to lay some foundation on. Uh, one is a little bit more about the characteristics of sea otters that have put them in the crosshairs of humans for the last couple hundred years. Uh, and the other thing is a little bit about the fur trade, because unless we understand what we've done to them and where they are, where they were, and something about their characteristics, you know, then I don't think we're going to be supporting policies that are going to be sustainable for the long haul successful policies. So let's spend a couple of minutes on what I call Sea Otter 101. Um, th th notice this one too. This is a mom and she's cradling this almost newborn pup. She's probably about a week old, but notice how carefully she's keeping that pup safe. The creature we're talking about tonight, I'm talking about, is, their fancy name is Enhydrolutris neres. That means southern sea otter. And I'll focus on the southern sea otter tonight. There are actually two other subspecies of sea otters 
around the Pacific Rim. One is the northern or Alaskan sea otter, and the other is the Russian or Asian sea otter. But we'll focus tonight on Anhydrolutris nereus. And while we're in the fancy name category, um, let me go and talk about the family just for a minute, the biological family. I'm talking taxonomy, classification, that sort of thing. Um, does anybody know what family the sea otters are in? Fancy name? Right, they're mustelids, they're in the mustelidae family. And, but you know what the mustelidae family is? It's the weasel family. So they're in the weasel family. And just in case you haven't seen a weasel recently, uh, there's the weasel. I want to mention a couple of other members of the family for a very specific reason. So badgers are also members of this family, as are wolverines, river otters, of course, close cousins, the tyra, sort of a strange and unusual creature in South America, the mink, some of you may remember seeing a mink stole at some point or another in your life, a creature called the sea mink, and this is a sketch of a sea mink. Now the reason that it's a sketch and not a photograph is that the sea minks were hunted to extinction in the 1800s in the North Atlantic where they lived. And they were hunted to extinction for their fur. So the reason that I like to take a moment and pause with the family is to remember that we have already lost a member of this family. And so it can happen, it has happened, and we need to do everything uh, that we can to try to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Now, sometimes people ask me at a presentation, they say, Kim, I hear that skunks are members of that family. So let me address that question. Uh, up until a few years ago, they were considered members of this family. And uh, the more advanced and more sophisticated genetic testing and looking at the DNA finally led the scientists to conclude that they were not members of the weasel family, and they were unceremoniously booted out of the family. I hear they made a big stink about it, but it didn't get them anywhere. <laughs> if nobody laughs in the room, at least I have this guy laughing. No. Actually, the story in this picture, to me, what's the story? Uh, there we go. Is the teeth. Yeah, that's not something that you're going to want to get anywhere near, those incredibly jagged teeth. But uh, sea otters adapted for the ocean. Uh, like all the other marine mammals, the whales, dolphins, seals, sea lions, they all have adapted from the land and come into the ocean. Most of them a long time ago, the sea otters are actually the most recent to have come into the ocean and live and give birth and, and uh, their existence is in the ocean. Somewhere between about five and seven million years ago. And there are two adaptations, I think, that are very significant for us to understand in terms of understanding our relationship with sea otters. Uh, and the first as I started talking about before, was this incredibly rich fur. And I say sometimes it's all about the fur for sea otters. Um, this is the most dense fur of any creature on the planet. Uh, it has, in its most dense areas, more than a million hairs per square inch. So if this is kind of a square inch, more than a million hairs in that square inch. Just by comparison, the human head has about 150,000 hairs. Uh, I may have a few less at this point, but, but normal, uh, ordinary human head is about 150,000 hairs. That's on the entire head. That's not per square inch. This is a million per square inch. Um, so it's incredibly rich and dense, and it's very important to their survival. Um, this is another shot of some fur, and notice the folds of fur on that. Let me just check this out. No, that's not. Um, you can see how it's folded up on the neck there. And I look at sea otters. They have this very loose skin. 
Um, I kind of think of them as a size six creature in a size eight skin. Um, but that's because they have to groom that fur. They have to groom it all the time to make sure that it's in good shape. Um, they actually uh, have two layers. They have an outer layer that's the, called the guard hairs, somewhat water repellent, protecting the under layer or the under fur, which is shorter and very dense beneath that. And the otters actually spend some time grooming. And they're not just sort of aligning their fur. Um, they're sometimes blowing bubbles of air into the under fur. So they create actually an envelope of air around themselves to help with that insulation. And they also spread natural oils on that fur. So there's a lot of stuff going on when they're, when they're grooming. But if you have to do that in order to survive, how do you groom your backside? Unless you can turn your head all the way around and they haven't figured out how to do that yet. So what they do is they actually just grab their fur and they kind of pull that skin around and they're able to groom by doing it that way. Now, all of that mechanism for keeping the cold off isn't even enough for a sea otter pup. Uh, this is a, a sea otter pup riding on top of his mom. Uh, and I'll zoom in a little bit on him. And you notice that that fur, first of all, you notice that really shaggy fur around uh, the face. And that's not what you ordinarily expect to see with a sea otter. But more importantly, notice here how the water is just sheening off of the backside. It's not penetrating that fur at all. So for a sea otter pup, during the first 60 days or so of its life, it has a very special coat of fur that's called a pup fur. Um, that's a fancy technical name. And uh, the uh, idea is to keep it uh, afloat in the water. They're not born knowing how to swim. And so for those first 60 days, if they didn't have some kind of a life jacket, they'd actually just drown. They would sink and drown. And so what this special fur does is it keeps the water off completely. Essentially, it creates the buoyancy necessary to keep them right up on top of the water so that they can't sink. And if you see a pup, if you're lucky enough to see one in this very, very early stage of its life, um, it's almost comical to watch them because they like to try to dive, but they can't because they're wearing a life jacket. And so they'll keep popping back up. And I have a video clip that's going to show just that. little pup would really like to dive. Mom goes down really smooth. Just doesn't work when you're wearing a life jacket. So, I said it's all about the fur, um, but I said there were a couple of different adaptations, and so maybe I should also say it's all about the food or about the calories. Um, the, again, this cold ocean water means that they have to uh, consume an awful lot of food in order to sort of fend it off. They've got a, it's a calorie issue. Uh, and in fact, a sea otter typically has to eat about a quarter to a third of its body weight each day in order to survive. That's a lot. I mean, if, you think about, if I think about it for me, if I was eating nothing but quarter pounders, which I would never do, but if that's what I did, I have to eat 50 or 60 quarter pounders a day in order to survive. And they're doing it one bit of shellfish at a time. So you can imagine they spend an awful lot of their time engaged in that process of finding their prey and eating. Um, and so it depends on their habitat, what, how much food is out there. But they might have to spend anywhere between about 8 hours and 14 hours a day eating. A lot of time. Uh, but that's what it takes in order to stoke that furnace. Now, I'll show you a couple of eating shots. This is my uh, clam shot. 
This is when actually National Geographic uh, got interested in this. But this is the basic breaking that open on their chest on a rock. You know that they use that rock. Here's another one. Um, this is a muscle, not a clam. This is another one in the story. This picture to me is the teeth, not really the muscle, it's the teeth. Those sharp, conical, really thick, powerful teeth. You're not going to want to go up to this creature and say, here, kitty, 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 or anything like that. You're not want to get near a sea otter in any case, um, lest you lose your wrist. Um, but, you know, when I think about these teeth and I think about shark's teeth, for example, what shape comes to mind when you think about shark's teeth? Yeah, triangular and razor sharp and really pointed, right? And this is completely different. This is conical and pointed. They're very different purposes. The shark's tooth is to rip flesh off, and this is to break through and scrape things out. But I've shown you a clam and a mussel, so it kind of raises the question, do they eat all kinds of shellfish, or, or what's, what's the deal uh, with this shellfish? And it turns out the researchers have found that they seem to specialize in one kind of shellfish or another. Each otter is different. So one might like clams more, one might like mussels more. Uh, it's not like they'll starve to death if they don't have their favorite, uh, but they will tend to gravitate towards one or another favorite. And interestingly enough, that favorite is kind of handed down from mom to pup, which makes a lot of sense because the moms teach the pups how to eat, teach them how to swim. Um, so here's another type of prey. This is a crab aficionado. Uh, used to show this picture of six different versions where there's one less leg in each picture, but I've decided. <laughs> but this is an after-dinner crowd. <laughs> no. um, here's another picture of a crab situation, and this picture to me is very disturbing. Um, I've spun it into outer space a little photographically, but this is a, a, an otter that has a crab in a glass jar that it picked up, some piece of garbage somebody threw into the ocean. Uh, and there's a high likelihood that that jar is going to get cracked in the process. There's a lot of commotion on that chest of a sea otter. And if it cracks that jar, if it cuts its skin or its fur, and it can't eat, um, it's going to lose about 10 pounds a day. A sea otter that can't eat will lose that much, and it can only survive, lose about 25 pounds before it's going to die. So there's really no margin for safety there. And if it cuts its fur, uh, you've now ruined that insulation. It's likely to die of hypothermia as well. So it's just a piece of garbage, and yet it poses that kind of threat to a sea otter. And I'll share one last picture of trash. Um, this is a sea otter pup in a piece of canvas trash. They're curious little creatures. Obviously, he found this thing at the bottom and was playing with it, came up with it. Now, the more once he's broken the surface, as he tries to get out of it, the more tangled up he gets and he can't get out. And it's a good point for me to mention that I take my pictures with telephoto lenses from a great distance away on the shoreline. I'm not out in a kayak or a boat or something where I could even go over and try to do anything to rescue this little guy. It's just a piece of trash. Um, here's another type of prey. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, great crowd. Gooseneck barnacles. Imagine trying to get your meal out of that. <laughs> so this is uh, what I call otter yoga. <laughs> but I use this picture to take a pause and a deep breath before we talk about something that's not quite so happy. And that's the fur trade, when they were driven literally to the edge of extinction. And that fur trade really began in earnest in the early 1700s. Uh, sea otter's range was all the way around the northern Pacific Rim, so from Japan all the way over to Baja, California, all the way down south to Baja, California. And that trade began to basically, uh, the Russians uh, trading with the Chinese, and they wiped out sea otters all the way across the Pacific Rim. By the time they came over to North America, we joined in. The United States joined in, Americans did, into that hunt. By 1911, 
it was widely believed that after a million sea otters had been killed, uh, about a million, uh, that they were extinct. Uh, and what happened was it turns out that uh, even though they were believed to be gone from the planet, uh, there was a little group of maybe 40, uh, 50 maybe at the most, uh, that survived off the coast of Big Sur. And it's, uh, at that time, back in the early 1900s, there were probably a couple hundred each of that other subspecies. Remember I said there's the northern sea otter and the Asian sea otter. So that's all the sea otters that were left at that time. And it's from that little population of about 40 that our current population of 3,128 southern sea otters has, has come. Uh, again, that's not a very big number, uh, but the problem is that it now turns out that about 3,000, give or take a few hundred, seems to be the carrying capacity of the range in which they live. So this is a couple hundred miles of the central California coast. That's what the range is down to at this point. And so they've reached a carrying capacity. Um, no more shellfish to support a higher population. Now it's important to note that we extract some shellfish from that, that area as well, so there's some balancing that has to be done that we have to think about. Um, but more importantly, we really have to kind of get out of their way and, and help support the expansion of that range because otherwise the numbers aren't actually going to go up beyond about 3,000 uh, and get to be sustainable. So moving south, which is the direction in which they've been expanding very slowly, you have a few of experimented coming all the way down here, but they're moving in that direction slowly and we really need to get out of their way and let that happen. Because this is a picture just to illustrate, this is about how many sea otters were left in 1911. That's it. That's a really small number. And when you get to a number that's that small, you have to concern yourself with well, what kind of threats could take them out. Because that's just not a, a large enough number to sustain much by way of a, tr of a problem. And of course, um, oil spills become really the big threat, the biggest single threat, because an oil spill could take out the entire population. And I'll give you the example of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Uh, it's up in Alaska, and some of you, let's see, some of you were alive at that time, some of you were not. Uh, so some of you may remember this, but the Exxon Valdez was an oil tanker. Uh, it cracked up on the rocks in the nighttime uh, in Alaska. Uh, the, the captain was drunk, actually, uh, and it spilled more about 11 million gallons, uh, and it affected more than 1,500 miles of coastline of Alaska. And that killed more than 3,000 sea otters, also killed countless other marine mammals like the whales and seabirds and fish, and of course it destroyed the livelihoods of, of uh, thousands of native Alaskans, and it's taken decades for that commercial fisheries and things like that to come back. Um, it also was the first major oil spill uh, to which we mounted a response, and we really had no experience and didn't know what exactly to do. A lot of lessons were learned, but uh, as to how to do it better, uh, we do it better now. Uh, but it's also true that you can't fix these problems, you can't correct it, you can't make it all right. Uh, unless you think that I'm just kind of being real crazy out there and, you know, sort of chicken little kind of thing, sky is falling. Let me remind you that all the Alaskan crude oil today that's transported by tanker passes through southern sea otter habitat. It either comes down to San Francisco Bay to Richmond for refining or right here down to Long Beach for refining. And so when I look at that picture, I think a little bit about it, and I said it's about the fur and it's about the food, but maybe it's about the kids, or in this case the pups, that is the numbers of sea otters really matter uh, when you have such a small group and such a big threat. Uh, so it's all about getting out of their way 
and allowing them to populate one pup at a time. And of course, the sea otter-mom-pup relationship uh, is a, it's a labor of love. Um, they, um, the mom has to teach it how to you know, swim, how to eat, right? how to groom itself. She has to protect it from threats 24 by 7. So she's got quite a, quite a job to do. It's not an easy life, and it's very taxing on the, on the moms. Uh, and it drains their resources. But when it works, it's very idyllic and nice and cute. But in that same moment, this, is, this same pup, you know, 30 seconds later, pup's still up on mom's chest, and now we have somebody coming in to do some mischief, perhaps, and so mom's going to have to take some action. <laughs> She's sending a message, right? This is another form of assistance, mom to pup. Uh, and so when I look at this dynamic and the difficulty and the raising of the pups and how hard it is, how taxing it is, um, that makes me revisit my formula and say, wait, it's about the fur, the food, the pups. It's a lot about us because of the impact that we have uh, on their ecosystem. And that really does bring into focus for me the whole idea about stewardship of the ocean, um, taking care of business here and protecting it. And the older I've gotten, now I'm in my ripe old age, and I look back on how, how I came to view conserving our resources and the ocean, and I think it really starts with a passion. So the flip side of stewardship, I think, is this passion. It has to be something that you really care about, because if you care about something, you protect it. We care about the things and protect the things that we care about. Uh, so passion and celebration kind of go together, so let me digress for just a minute and share a couple of things from the gallery that are celebrating these other things in the ocean besides sea otters. I'm not just a one-trick pony. Uh, this is a pair of humpback whales up in Monterey Bay. They're doing something called bubble feeding or bubble net feeding. They work together as a team underwater. They've been corralling anchovies by the thousand, and they're blowing bubbles of air that sort of freaks the anchovies out and drives them into a smaller and tighter ball. And when they get thousands of them in this nice tight ball, the whales signal each other. They go down beneath that ball, open their mouths up wide, come right up through the middle of it, and break the surface, which is right where we are in this picture. Uh, and they've got thousands of anchovies. They've got a big, big gulp, big mouthful of fish. And you can see the expanded throat on the hump back there. But that allows them to get that big mouthful so they can take in more fish. The water drains out, and they're quite happy. Um, uh, last year we had an influx, so this is humpbacks, but in Monterey we had an unusual influx of blue whales. Uh, and the blue whales are the largest creature on the planet, largest creature as far as we know that ever was on the planet. They're bigger than any of the dinosaurs. Uh, and this is a pair of them, one's in the distance. This is off of Big Sur. You can see the mountains of Big Sur there. And so here's a little bit closer shot of the whale tail, like you could take a shower under there. Um, but you don't have a reference point in this picture. So I could be tricking you. This could be a sardine for all you know, right? So I had to give you one with a reference point. Now, I don't recommend this. I mean, I'm, it's impressive. Look at the size of that tail and think about the other 80 feet down below the surface. <laughs> you know. But this is both, uh, to get that close, is both illegal under a federal and state law it's dangerous for the boat, it's dangerous for the people in the boat, but most importantly to me, it's dangerous for the whale. It's both distracting and a concern for that whale. You know, they may be very big, but they're aware of what's going on around them. Uh, and that's going to distract this whale from doing the things that it needs to do in order to survive. And we haven't always been kind to the whales, as you all know. Um, this actually is a picture from 
the last whaling station in Monterey Bay uh, closed in 1923. Notice the whale being pulled up that ramp there. Um, this is the last whaling station in California. And it's in Richmond, California. You know when this one closed? Uh, 1973. Yeah. So there was something else that happened in 1973 that I think is very important to this story, and that was the passage of the Endangered Species Act. And the Endangered Species Act has been responsible for helping restore the sea otters to the extent that they are restored. It's been involved with the humpback whales, been involved with the California condor, uh, and many, many other creatures, the bald eagle, all kinds of other creatures. Um, but I'm here tonight to tell you that the Endangered Species Act itself is now endangered. Um, there has been an active movement underway for the last two and a half years to try to get rid of it. And there's, this effort is actually to repeal it. And there have been two hearings in the United States Senate that have been addressing this issue. Uh, and the strategy, I think, is if it can't be repealed because maybe there's uh, public support to, to keep it in place, um, then the strategy is to defund the agencies that are responsible for administering it and helping to implement it and do the research that's necessary to make it be a successful program to help uh, species recover. And if that can't be accomplished, then the idea is just to roll back regulations and see, you know, try to mess with it so that it can't actually effectively work. So this is a grave concern. Um, you know, this thing has been in place for almost 50 years, and it's been responsible for the recovery of many species. And so we really face this situation, and we have to be involved. And I think the question that it puts on the table is, is what is the underlying policy or philosophy? You know, what do we care about? Um, is this a program that's to be built on good science and an ethic of stewardship and conservation and preserving our oceans and our creatures? You know, or is it all about money? and about disengaging government, pulling government back from protecting our environment. So these are questions that I think we have to look at, we have to address, and we uh, as citizens have to you know, make our uh, positions clear on this. And I'll give you the example in the sea otter case. They were listed under the Endangered Species Act, which means they were given the protections of the Endangered Species Act, put on the list, so to speak, as a threatened creature in 1977. And uh, there's a plan in place that, you know, you don't put them on, a, on the list forever. You know, keep evaluating to see whether they still have the need for the protections. And the plan that was developed in 2003 said basically they could be considered for delisting, pulling them off the list and eliminating the protection if there were 3,090 of them for three years in a row. Well, the number I gave you, which is a low number, less than 3,200, but it's still over 3,090, and it turns out that is the third year in a row that it's been over that. Even though the number's been declining for the last two years, it's over 3,090, which means that it could be considered for delisting right now. And the Fish and Wildlife Service um, is going to have to take a look at whether they will start those procedures or, or will they sit back and maybe reconsider. There are other factors besides numbers that they have to consider under the law. And for example, and I won't go into all of them, but threats to the range, disease, predation, there are other things that have to be taken into account besides the number, but the number is the thing that triggers that consideration. So um, we will be watching uh, as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service starts to look at this question in the near future. Uh, and we hope that they will, and they have always taken very professional positions on these things and looked at the science, 
Uh, and if there's anything that doesn't happen, that uh, doesn't work out that way, then there are sea otter advocates who will be prepared to file lawsuits if necessary and see if the courts will intervene uh, if it's not uh, considering all the aspects of the law. So this is the kind of place where I think citizen impact is really important. Uh, we, the people, make a difference. And uh, we can certainly watch the regulations and the process, in this case, with the sea otters, but uh, there's a lot, lot else going on. And so let me give you just some of the, the laundry list of things that I think that we need to be paying attention to. Uh, it starts with uh, legislation, like I'm saying, about the Endangered Species Act and other legislation. There's litigation, the lawsuits that, that are in place now and that will potentially come into place. Um, there's elections. We have to be paying attention to who gets in office because who's in office determines a lot about who's in charge of various agencies and what kind of policies are going to be put out there. Um, there's education. Uh, and when I say education, I'm talking about education both of the public and also education within our universities and our colleges and high school and everywhere else, you know, educating the next generations of, of uh, good stewards. And last and certainly not least, good science. Um, because science is the backbone of all of these kinds of decisions that we have to make to set up policies and programs that are going to succeed. And if it sounds overwhelming, the reason that I include the mom and the pup in this picture is to remind us that it's difficult for the mom and that pup. She's got to walk and chew gum at the same time, too. Uh, you know, so we've got a number of different areas for us to pay attention to. You, you're not going to pay attention to all of these different things, but you, know, you pick your areas where you think you want to pay attention and get involved. So it can be overwhelming, and I have a template for you. Don't worry. I've already got it solved. Um, this is my template, and it involves sort of the formula. It involves people, policy, and passion. And when I'm talking about people, what I really mean is that you know, we, the people, uh, have created these problems in large part. Uh, and so we, the people, have the obligation and the ability to do something to help correct them. When I talk about policy, well, maybe it's my background as a lawyer and a litigator and a judge and such, but that's the, the direction I tend to move in because I think that's an area where we can actually say, this is what we want to do. This is what we should do. You know, we actually have that kind of ability. And then passion, as I mentioned before, I think is a really important part of it because without passion, this is too long of a, of a, of a struggle. You know, we're going to run out of energy, and so we've got to keep involved, and, and the passion is where it comes from. Sorry. Um, so where do we go from here? What's on the horizon? I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know. The story is not yet finished. The sea otter story isn't finished. Our story isn't finished, and the story of our ocean is not finished. Um, I'm going to continue to get together with groups of people like this and try to bring people together so that we can talk about these issues and sort of inspire each other uh, to keep going. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing that, and I've been focusing a little more of my attention on trying to educate young people um, because I, I see that. I mean, I started young in terms of my passion for the ocean and the coast, and San Francisco Bay is where it started. And I can see how that's you know, given me something in my DNA that's kind of carried through my whole life. So I think the earlier we start, I think the better. And so I worked uh, on, uh, with National Geographic uh, with their Nat Geo Kids division and, and helped them with a book that came out last year uh, for preschoolers. It's a book about sea otters in the Explore My World series. So that was one way of sort of launching it in that direction. But now I'm just finishing a project. This is my, my current passion, uh, and that's a book um, it's going to come out in December, and that guy is my favorite little sea otter pup, 
the only one I've ever nicknamed. His name is Sabby. Um, I was lucky enough to follow him for a couple of months, uh, which is pretty good given that he's not like he's tagged or anything like that. Uh, and I witnessed a, an adventure that changed uh, his and his mom's life. And I photographed it, and so I wrote that story up, and so that's going to come out uh, in December. In fact, I actually, somebody told me this week that it's available on Amazon for pre-order. But I'm hoping that it'll be uh, down here at the aquarium. And they will be, thank you. That's good. Maybe I can come back and we'll do a, <laughs> we'll do a talk about the book. We got it. There we go. That's a good idea. Um, it's got lots of interesting pictures, and you'll want to know what happened, and I'm not going to tell you what happens to the story. But I will ask you to get in touch with me and stay in touch with me. Um, this is uh, an email address to uh, get in touch, seattleadventures at gmail.com. You don't have to capitalize it like that. But um, I'd be interested just to get your feedback, your questions. I'm happy to answer questions or just have a dialogue. Tell me an interesting story that you've uh, experienced um, or just send me your name and I'll put you on my email list. You don't have to worry about me spamming you. It's actually the other way around. I really don't send things out <laughs> hardly ever. Uh, so I'm trying to do more of that. But if you get in touch with me, then you know it would be good. And if things come up, um, I'll let you know. So let me kind of close with um, a few thoughts about the, uh, the big picture here. Um, when I look at this picture, the story in this picture, it's a cry for help. Um, I think the sea otter's story is kind of a cry for help. Uh, and I think part of my fascination with sea otters all along has been, and more so now, uh, is that I see us in them when I look at them. Uh, they're vulnerable in the ocean and to the ocean, uh, just as we're vulnerable. Their story is not done, our story is not done. Uh, and there's no guarantees about survival for either of us. You know, but I take hope uh, when I see uh, good people like you coming out, and when I see people making the kinds of commitments that they, we need to make in order to change our lifestyles, to get involved in nonprofits and education and, and um, all these different things that we can do to, to work these issues. And so that makes me optimistic. And I hope that um, 50 years from now, People will say that we were good stewards of the ocean and all that depends upon it. And with that, I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you for having me. We have time for some questions. If you raise your hand, we'll bring you a microphone. Got one over there and then up here. Um, you mentioned several times the number 3,000. What is the number that you and other sea otter experts feel is the goal for a sustainable southern sea otter population? And secondly, what do you think is the single most important factor that can be done to get the sea otters to that number? Great questions. Um, the numbers, boy, that's a tough question because there's not like an easy target number to say. I will say that um, numbers back before they were decimated, at least for the southern sea otters, were more than 30,000. You see various estimates, 30, 50,000, something like that. So you know, to me, I like that as a guide. I like thinking, OK, that's where we kind of want to be when we could sit back and, and think that this mission is accomplished. Um, uh, but you hear sometimes I've heard experts talk about trying to get to 8,000 uh, as, as a pretty good indicator. 
But 3,000 is just absolutely not sufficient, and it was a number that was set before we understood some things that in the last five, uh, ten years have, have become much more apparent based on good research. We learned a whole lot about them, and, and understand that 3,000 was a, a gross underestimate of what would be sustainable. And the second part of the question was, what can we do? Yeah. Right. Right. And so all of those things, you know, each one of them has a slightly different thing that one could do behind it, right? I mean, if you think, well, oil spills, which is a monstrous threat and it's going to potentially keep us from getting there at all, then you think about working backwards from that. Well, what do I want to do? I want to change my habits and go to more energy efficiency and start to use less oil. And I mean, you know, you start to work on lifestyle changes and then advocacy and with nonprofits and educational organizations that work on those types of issues. So that's kind of a path if you look at the oil side of it. If you look at you know, the predation side of it, you might get more involved with uh, understanding about why great white sharks are eating more sea, or well, killing them, not eating them, um, at the expansion points on the range. So the perimeter of that range, moving south, well, actually, it turns out that white sharks are doing more damage to sea otters at the ends, at the edges of the range, which is really keeping them from being able to go very much further. Uh, why is that? Not well understood. White sharks are protected under the Endangered Species Act, so now they're beginning to recover. So there are more of them, and there are more juveniles. And so maybe the juveniles are not understanding things well because it's an accident when it kills a sea otter. It's not, uh, they don't eat it. Uh, they think it's a seal or a sea lion. They bite it, and the sea, the sea otter's going to die, the shark's going to go away hungry. Nobody wins on that transaction, but we don't understand exactly why that's happening. So you might get more involved in that kind of uh, direction. So there's just different directions for each of these things. We have one down here. What impact are you seeing from climate change, especially as it involves the reduction of our kelp forests which sea otters clearly depend upon. Right, and, and sea otters are good stewards of our kelp forest too. They're not just dependent upon it, they actually are literally critical to the health of the kelp forest. So you're right, I mean kelp forest and climate change and, and global warming and sea level rise um, and the changing temperature at the ocean surface, uh, you know, there's an immediate impact or really close and tight loop um, to the level of acidification at the surface level of the ocean. And so the acidification level is going up, uh, and that has an impact on shellfish because they have calcium carbonate shells, which are very sensitive to the level of acidification. If you drive that acidification level, you're going to impair the ability of shellfish to be able to grow and sustain their shells, and then you're hitting the primary prey of the sea otter. So you have an issue that's, that's a very concrete one. Other ones are a little more tricky, in a sense, um, because we were talking about this before this program tonight, about the interrelationships between various things, different kinds of shellfish or sharks or sea lions and, and the temperature of the ocean. They're all interrelated. Every time you look at one of these things, you go, oh, wait a minute, but that's tied to this one very directly and then to this one and this one and this one. So it's a really holistic view that we have to, to take a look at it. And uh, climate change and the relation with sea level rise put those two things together because sea level rise is changing the habitats for these creatures over time, and that's going to have another impact. So we have to look at the whole picture. Bottom line is we, we have to work to do everything we can to change our impact on this global warming, number one. That's sort of the simple first fact. And the second fact is we have to worry about and think about how we're planning to manage the fact that the ocean level is rising and that's changing these ecosystems and changing for us. We have to figure out how we're going to retreat. 
Yes. Um, your presentation was absolutely phenomenal. And I hope that you're able to get it out to the schools as well as when you're in front of the government, they give you the opportunity to at least show segments of it, maybe to awaken people. When you're num mentioning the number of sea otters, and I saw this number 3,190, have they, ha have they looked at how many are females, how many are pups, and how many are males? I didn't hear you mention about the role of the male and if there, who has the greatest um, probability of survival and has that been narrowed down to be able to really escalate the survival of the sea otter? Uh, that's a really good point. I mean, the, the numbers, they absolutely know the numbers, the numbers you're talking about. This census that they take every year is an amazingly elaborate and it's a difficult task and they've really worked on this for years and so they know all those numbers and they know where they are and that sort of thing. Um, so, but I will address this thing about the, the males. I hate to, I hate to, because somebody, <laughs> I'm ashamed too, I'll put it that way. Because the males, I mean, they're very important, right? They, they're necessary. But the moms raise the pups and they raise them alone. The male does not help, the father does not help, the dad does not help. And worse than that, and that's why I always hate to talk about this, but uh, full disclosure, no. I mean. I have seen this more than once, and there's videotape out there, and you may have seen it on Big Blue Live, I think on PBS a couple of years ago, where the, the, the dad is worse than not helpful. Um, the, the dad will sometimes go and he'll kidnap the pup, or pupnap the pup, and he'll hold it as ransom until the mom goes and gets him a clam or some shellfish and gives it up, and she'll give him the shellfish and he'll release the pup. That's why I don't talk much about the dads. <laughs> See those cute pictures of moms and pups? You know, don't look at the dad over there. So, but they're absolutely necessary for the survival, and so we pretty much, you know, we have to continue to focus on the entire species and, and do all the things we do for them at every place along the range. Yeah, right here. Oh, oh sorry. Hi, I'm worried about the uh, in getting off the endangered species. Uh, if they were taken off, uh, what happens? Can people hunt them again, or what happens if they're off the the list? Yeah, if 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 they were taken off the if they were delisted from the Endangered Species Act protections, um, that's one very significant blow. The good news is that California State has a parallel law. It's sort of it doesn't mimic the Endangered Species Act, but it covers a lot of the same things and protects sea otters um, along with a lot of other creatures, marine mammals. Uh, and so, in fact, it would not then mean that you could just go out and shoot a bunch of sea otters. Uh, that wouldn't change. So I think that gives me hope to know that there is something in place that would not change even if the Endangered Species Act, if, if they were delisted from that. Uh, so they'd still be fairly protected, fairly rigorously protected. I mean, we still have people shooting them occasionally, I, a couple of times a year. I end up doing some little news, some station does a little squib with me because they say, no, they shot something and what do you think? Well, I think it's a horrible, it's a disaster. Uh, and why would anybody do that? Um, but I think the state law would, would protect it. What worries me is, in a sense, is more than the sea otters, it's the Endangered Species Act itself because there are other creatures in other states all over the country and other states don't necessarily have this kind of protection that we have. So it's still a great concern. 
but the sea otters probably would come out okay in the long run. We have one right here. In the event that there is a major um, oil spill along our coast, do you feel we have a, a plan in place to help protect the otters and other species? There are good plans in place, much more so than there used to be. I mean, there's really, there's a whole department in California in the Fish and Wildlife Service um, that there's a whole subsection that deals with oil spill response preparedness, basically. And there are some places uh, in Santa Cruz, where, where I'm from, um, there's a facility there that actually has cleanup spots to bring oiled marine mammals and that sort of thing. So I would say that you know, in terms of preparation, we're doing really well. It's a great job. Lots of good people doing that and ready to do the most sophisticated things that can be done. The problem is that when and if a problem happens, it's going to be so big that, uh, you know, the best preparation is going to handle some of it. But unless it's a very small problem, it's not going to handle all of it. Remember I mentioned the Exxon Valdez was 11 million gallons. That was what spilled. The BP oil spill, remember in the Gulf in 2010, that spilled 200 million gallons. So the magnitude of the problem, you know, it's bigger now than it was a long time ago. So that's, so preparedness is really important and vital and I think it's, you know, we, we need it. Um, but is it going to really solve a problem? If it's a big problem, I think we're in trouble. Any other questions? Um, I know that we used to have regulations or laws that were limit, artificially limiting the range of the sea otter, and if they yeah. came too far south, we tried to bring them back. And yeah. Were, is that still around, or is that gone? Thank you for asking that question. I, I didn't pay him to ask that question. but <laughs> Up until six months ago, um, I would speak at length about the lawsuits that have set up this... Uh, underwater barbed wire fence at Santa Barbara that said that any sea otters that come down that further than that need to be picked up by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and taken back. Um, and I would talk about the litigation specifically. I'm very in, engaged in that litigation. This shellfish industry in Southern California was trying to maintain some kind of a deal uh, that would keep the sea otters contained to San Nicolas Island off of the channel, in the Channel Islands. Um, but I'm happy to report that Six months ago, that lawsuit ended in the favor of the sea otters. So sea, sea otters are free to roam into Southern California waters, but for the last, for many years, there was an obligation to stop them from coming down there. Believe it or not, that was fun to talk about because it makes no sense if you start looking at the big picture of where they need to go. Um, but that changed and it was appealed, and it was appealed up um, to the federal appellate court. I mean, so. We won at this level, then it was appealed to the federal appellate court. We won at that level twice. <laughs> uh, and they actually appealed it to the United States Supreme Court. And about six months ago, the United States Supreme Court said, we, we're not taking it, which means that the lower decision stood, which means that the otters won. So we have one over here. Thank you, Thank you for your presentation. Um, can you comment about, I guess, another threat from within, which really whether there's genetic bottlenecking because the population that survived is so small. Right, there's, you know, there's an expression, a phrase, genetic bottleneck. So when a species goes down so close to extinction and then it continues, but it survives, like in this case, maybe with 40 sea otters. So all the descendants we have today 
I mean, all the otters we have today are descendants from this very small group. So then you start going, oh, wow, that means that the genetic diversity, which is what you ordinarily expect in large populations, is, is not there. They have less genetic diversity because they've come down through such a narrow bottleneck. And to answer your question, um, scientists are aware that there is a bottleneck, there is less genetic diversity. There has been, to my knowledge, no specific thing that anybody is pointing to and saying, this is a problem or that's a problem, but we understand that it is a problem to have less diversity. It just hasn't manifested itself in some way in which they are more vulnerable or you know, succumb to some disease or whatever the problems could be. Nobody's saying that that's the cause of any problem right now. But we know that underneath it all, this is a population that has a lower diversity than it should have. We have one here. So I'd like to know about the impacts of this wildly vacillating cycle that we have of drought and then this year with a really heavy precipitation um, even along the coast here in Long Beach over a foot and a half of rain since October like 19 inches in Long Beach um, and all the storm water runoff um, but that's true all along the California coast when you have extremely heavy rainfall um, is more stormwater pollution uh, in these heavy rain years um, a threat to their survival? Because even in Big Sur, they're getting a lot more stormwater runoff. I, that's a great question, um, and you're, you may know the answer. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, the uh, one of the things that has happened in the last. 10 years or 15 years as we have succeeded in getting better regulation of agricultural runoff and pesticides, agricultural pesticides and things like that. So the runoff that we have along our coastline, which is very heavily agricultural runoff and has in the past been a really big problem and would therefore be a huge problem based on what you're saying, I mean from this changing weather system, um, is less of a problem I think from what I've seen. Um, because of the fact that we have developed policies and succeeded in kind of pulling that in in terms of agricultural toxic types of runoff. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is we have not done nearly as good a job with urban runoff, so things that are not agricultural runoff, but the things like the paint that we wash down or the you know, stuff you put on your lawn. There's things you put on your lawn that you can't put on an agriculture field. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that go out in that direction that are less well regulated. So to that extent, there is an issue that's more population center related. I mean, you know, it's going to be heavier in the big population centers. And remember that the range of the sea otter is so small at this point that it only encompasses, well, it doesn't actually encompass any major urban areas. Um, uh, and it does uh, encompass agricultural areas. So you have this, the benefit of our regulation on the agricultural side. Uh, and the potential threat. Now, as the range expands, you're going to have more problem with urban runoff. I, I think question. what we're going to do is we're going to end with a statement from Brett. I want you to describe what the, this aquarium has been asked to do yeah. that, and we're very seriously considering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, though. No pressure. Uh, aquarium of the Pacific has been asked to partner with Monterey Bay Aquarium and SeaWorld to expand on Monterey Bay Aquarium's sea otter surrogacy program. 
So for the past 20 years, Monterey Bay Aquarium has been the only rehabilitation center in California that has rehabilitated orphaned sea otter pups. And they've done that by using adult female sea otters to be surrogates for orphaned sea otter pups. And the mothers or the sea otter surrogates teach the pups how to forage, how to groom. And when they reach approximately eight months old to a year, those pups can then be released back into the wild to rejoin the population off the Monterey Bay Big Sur coastline. Um, they're, they're at capacity and how many pups they can handle, which is about four per year. And Just four per year? About four per year. And at this point, there are on any given year between 10 and 15 sea otter pups strand. And so some pups after they strand that there aren't room at Monterey Bay Aquarium do get placed in other aquariums, including AOP. That's where all of the sea otters that we currently have have come from over the years. But those that there aren't room for are euthanized mm -hmm. because there isn't a place to put them. And so we are hoping to be able to partner with them and then be able to increase the capacity of surrogate females amongst the three facilities and then be able to put up to 12 healthy juvenile sea otters back per year. Wouldn't that... Yeah. Oh, sure. And so um, Monterey Bay Aquarium's actually been rehabilitating sea otters for probably close to 30 years. And the first 10 years was doing it in a way very standard with a lot of marine mammal rehabilitation. They were hand rearing these pups and they found after many years that the pups were too bonded to people. They would release them back into the wild. Often they learned how to forage in that, but as they re reached sexual maturity and or adults, they either would seek out humans for food or seek out and not behave like mature adult otters should. And so they switched the program over and worked on making sure that that habituation or that bond did not happen between humans and the sea otter pups. And so for the first eight weeks when they're rearing, when the humans are caring for the otters, they do it in a disguise and do everything they can to minimize the opportunity for the sea otter pups to bond. Because yeah. it's a tough job. It's a very tough job to raise them. The, the moms have a tough job, and uh, so we. You want we, to take that? You want to take that on? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question about Seattle? No. <laughs> okay. All right. We thank you all for coming. It was a terrific lecture, much. Kim. Thank you very much. Thanks. The next lecture is July nine, and it, it's to talk about how climate change is affecting migrations of all kinds of animals, both on land and in the ocean. Don't miss it. Thank you, Kim, very much. Thank you. It's been an honor. It's been an honor. Great, great, great talk. Thank you. I enjoy it.